So last week we talked about plantar fasciitis. Well, let's talk about its kissing cousin, Achilles tendon pain. Good morning, happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, solid weekend, great sleep, feeling good. Um, let's dig in to Monday's Q&A. This is uh, gonna be about some Achilles tendon pain, which is a, a close cousin to our friend plantar fasciitis that we talked about uh, last week. So again, a nice little lead in for the week from John. And John says, thanks again for all the great content. You're welcome, John. I've been seeing a lot of individuals with Achilles pain as of late in different foot presentations that are, that are close to or farther away from max propulsion. Um, calf raising is often used with individuals to influence tendon properties. However, it seems that this could create interference with someone who is biased towards late propulsion. This is actually a really good thought, John, and, and, and I think I'm going to have an answer for you. Um, how does your strategy change depending on the individual's foot type, and are, they, are there any other considerations for Achilles tendon pain? And I think that if we look at this from a, a little bit of a why perspective, first and foremost, we're going to get a really good representation of, of why this thing perpetuates in the first place. And then if we can understand that, I think we come up with a, with a really good solution and we can rely on, on some of the, the useful research that is available to us. So, so let's think about um, what would have to happen under these circumstances. So to get any change in, in a connective tissue property, we have to say, well, where does this nutrition come from? And, and so we're going to say, well, under most circumstances, it's going to come from that bony side. And so if we look at the enthesis where the tendon attaches to the bone under most of these circumstances, we get, we get a pretty significant bony change there. And so what, what this leads us to believe then is that we do have a compressive strategy. So we have a situation where there's, there's a high tension, it's, it's prolonged tension, and therefore we're going to get a reduction in, in blood flow. And so, so this is going to cause us to, to create some measure of a breakdown in, in the connective tissues. So the way that I look at this, John, is I'm going to break out my silly putty here for a sec. And so we think about if I just put this prolonged tension on my, on my silly putty and I end up with something that looks kind of like that, and I'll show you the cross section here. If I snap this sucker, you're going to see this, this middle part of the, of the silly putty getting compressed and the tendon behaves kind of the same way. So whether we're talking about patellar tendon or Achilles tendon, it doesn't really matter under those circumstances, but if we have this prolonged compressive strategy, then um, we're, we're probably going to see this, this tendon change. If you look at the research and, and you look at the, the, uh, the tendon itself where, where there is this degenerative change, um, you're going to see this proliferation of the proteoglycan content and water content around that area. So what that means is, is that the collagen is increasing around it, the water content increases, and this actually creates a c compressive strategy. So it stands to reason that our solution is going to be restoring some measure of expansion. And so what we want to look at then is like, well, what is this situation that's creating this? Now, you mentioned two foot types in your question, um, one that's really close to max propulsion and then one that's in, in really late. And so you think that, well, we got two foot types, how can this possibly be? What we wanna look at is what is the commonality between the two here? And under these circumstances, what we're gonna find in most situations is that in both situations, we're going to have an overcoming action in the connective tissue. So what we have are connective tissues that are loaded at a higher rate, and therefore they're going to behave in, in a certain way. 
And so um, we think about like a court athlete that's gonna live really, really close to max propulsion or we're gonna have people that are pushed all the way forward into this late, late propulsive strategy. And so their center of gravities are gonna be shifted forward. And if we look at a couple of representations of this, we can actually see the difference in the appearance uh, of, the, of the Achilles. So if I have somebody that's got a center of gravity that's shifted way, way forward, my expectation would be that it's gonna be like the silly putty example where I'm gonna have a lot of tension on that Achilles. And so if I pull it long, it's gonna appear a little bit thinner than, than, than the side that would be less loaded in this, this um, anterior center of gravity. And sure enough, we do see these, these things arise. And so we can actually see the difference and, and if you're if you're not sure, I got a little before and after here. Um, actually, it's probably right there. Um, that you can see this is the same person, and you can see the before and the after. You can actually see the entire orientation of the lower extremity change. You can see the foot change, um, especially if you look at the calcaneus, where in the, the early stages you can see it looks like they're trying to lift that calcaneus off the ground because you can see the roundness of it where it doesn't have the the pressure through the calcaneus. And then later on, as we recaptured this posterior. Uh, orientation and, and able to hold the center of gravity back, we get more load, loading through the calcaneus, and then we get that sort of restoration of the shape of, of, of the tendon here. So what we want to think about then, John, is, is how does this foot type arise? Well, we've got a center of gravity problem, so we've got to think axial skeleton. Right, so we, we got to address that first. We have to make sure that we have enough shape change in the axial skeleton so we can move through this propulsive phase without biasing ourselves towards this, this overcoming action. So when we talk about this, what we're gonna look at is, is we gotta recapture some, some key performance indicators up, up into the hip. So we want our non-compensatory internal and external rotations. We want heel to butt flexion at, at the knee. And what this is for is to do, make sure that we've got tibial internal rotation. If we don't get the heel to the butt, then we know that we probably still have some orientation into external rotation at that proximal tibia. Um, and so under, under many circumstances, especially in this late propulsive um, type, type of foot, that's what we're gonna see is this, is this ER at the tibia. Um, for those that, that are more biased towards that, that flatter arch, that's looking for internal rotation, so we gotta make sure that we recapture that. So again, so we got ER and IR at the hip, we got um, uh, the, the tibial rotation uh, back to normal, and then you wanna think about um, how, do, how can I be assured that I can move through this propulsive strategy um, without the, the overcoming action. And so we're gonna use sort of like the old knee to the wall test if you want, so, so flat foot, Near the wall, you want to be able to get the foot about three to four inches away from the wall where they can get knee contact and maintain uh, the calcaneus on the ground. Um, you may have to use some manual techniques under these circumstances to restore some of this tibial stuff, at least to, to, to buy you a window of opportunity. So you might have to manually uh, rotate that tibia at, at the knee to, to recapture the internal rotation. When we talk about activities, so we're going to start to move people back away from this, these later propulsive uh, strategies. And so uh, this is your heels elevated squats, your front foot heel elevated split squats for those people that are in late. So we wanna bring them all the way back to early. If I have somebody that's got the flatter arch, I'm gonna one, make sure that I, I, I do something to control the position of the arch. So remember that the low arch allows that tibia to translate forward very, very quickly. I need to slow that down to slow the rate of loading onto those tissues. And so then this might be a shoe type or this might be an orthotic solution. And then I'm gonna use things like my, my front foot elevated split squat where I've got the flat foot where I'm teaching the tibia to translate over the foot with the control of the arch. 
Now, let's talk about the tendon in and of itself. So here's where we get to rely on, on some useful research. And I would point you towards uh, Keith Barr, B-A-A-R, and, and Jill Cook. They've, they've got the, the most prominent research um, right now. Um, we're gonna use heavy static loads um, with extended durations. And so we'll start with like a 10, a 10 second load on the tendon, build up to about 30, and you want a total accumulation of about five to 10 minutes of loading. So you're gonna build this up over time. So this is a number of weeks and months, et cetera. But, but I think the strategy that we wanna use here um, in, in reference to your question is, we wanna make sure that we're using a yielding action to promote the stress relaxation of the tendon. So, so over time, as we hold these static positions, it's almost like a telescoping of, of the tendon where the, the superficial layers slowly um, elongate where we can start to expose the, the deeper part of the tendon that's, that's uh, most likely affected. And so again, we wanna use this yielding action versus something that would be overcoming. So when we talk about like a standing calf raise or something like that, we wanna make sure that we're using the yielding position so we're not pushing up against um, the, the, the immovable resistance to create an overcoming action. That's a mistake that I've actually made in the past is we wanna make sure that we're using a yielding static position. Um, one of the easiest ways to do this is to pull out the old 1985 Muscle and Fitness seated calf raise machine. Um, it's just an easy way to create the load because we need 80% plus of, of one repetition maximum loads. And so the seated calf raise is, is money under these circumstances. So John, I hope that leads you in a direction and gives you some ideas in regards to how to deal with this. Um, I, I, I think the rules apply across the board. Whenever we're talking about these peripheral connected tissues and how they get loaded, I think they're just under a lot of concentric orientation with overcoming actions. Um, with the commonality being the overcoming action because we can obviously have eccentric orientation and overcoming as well. Um, if you have any questions, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. It's two for Tuesday. We got two questions on the bench press. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, so it's Tuesday, and that means it's bench press day, um, but isn't every day bench press day. We had a couple questions that came through in regards to the bench press. Mike Robertson and I recently posted um, the first part of a tutorial on, on supine pressing, so it just seemed like uh, bench press is just very prominent um, in my mind right now, so we're gonna go with it today, and we're gonna attack two questions. Um, specifically about this. So the first one comes from Norman, and Norman says, um, in my, my past coaching experience, I've accidentally come across a strategy for helping powerlifters lock out better for those who stalled the lockout. The strategy was to cue a forceful exhalation. Is this because the exhalation aspires towards extension and internal rotation, according to your model, and does that cue in the bench press allow you to capture that extension and internal rotation? Can you please expand on this thought? So I think you're, you're on point here, uh, Norman. Um, first things first, let me point you towards, um, there's a couple of videos on YouTube um, that you'll find in regards to lockout strategies that, that may also be of interest to you. Um, so, so, so please go there. Um, one of the things that we wanna recognize about lifting heavy things in all situations is that we are looking at an exhalation bias. So, so when we look at capturing range of motion, we're gonna use inhalation, expansion, eccentric orientation, all those concepts. 
are geared towards us acquiring positions. But when it comes to force production, it is, it is exhalation, compression, concentric orientation. And, and again, this is where all the force production lies. And we need both obviously to execute any any exercise. So we have some form of excursion of the joints that, that we have to move through to execute a, a bench press. Um, but we want to minimize, we want to minimize the eccentric orientation because eccentrically oriented muscle doesn't have tension on it. It doesn't produce force. And so, so again, when we're looking at, at these strategies, Across the board, when we're talking strength training, we want to we want to maximize concentric orientation, exhalation, compression. So, if we consider the setup of the bench press, everything is designed for maximizing compression. So, we talk about the arch position. So, so that's a posterior compressive strategy that we're that we're using to minimize any form of expansion. We've got a scapular position that is compressing two bones against the back of the thorax so it cannot expand. The bench in and of itself, the, the pressure under the bench enhances all of those things. We wanna think about neck position. So, so in, in this circumstance, you're gonna see an, an orientation of, of the, the cranium on top of the neck such that it pulls the hyoid bone up. So the hyoid bone goes up, it compresses the, the airway, and so we minimize our ability to expand. And it also helps us to perform the Vesalva maneuver, which is an exhalation strategy. So Vesalva is an exhalation against a closed glottis. So that is um, another attempt to raise pressure internally. And so again, so we do, do all these things to minimize minimize eccentric orientation so our force production goes up. So you are 100% correct, Norman, that everything that we're doing in this circumstance is, is an exhalation bias. And by cueing the strong exhalation um, at, at lockout, you're going to enhance their ability to lock it out. Now, here's what I would caution you against. If you release too much pressure, if you release the pressure too soon, through an exhalation, they're gonna fail the lift. So there's an element of timing that's gonna be associated with this. And so in most cases, what you're gonna see is you're gonna you're gonna see people maintain their breath hold throughout, or you're gonna hear like the smallest little grunt or or groan as they are they are locking this out because we wanna minimize, we wanna minimize that release. We tend to let the air out under these circumstances so we can actually capture the position. So again, we need external rotation. We need some eccentric orientation to achieve positions, but we want to minimize that. So, so Norman, thank you for that question. I hope that answers it for you. Now, second question comes from Anthony. And Anthony says, I'm noticing a lot of stronger lifters are lifting their heads off the bench in a bench press. Why is this happening? So, Anthony, I got a video recommendation for you. Go to, I believe it's June of last year where we're answering a question for Vikram in regards to neck position during the bench press. And so, so what you're gonna see is you're gonna see um, a, a cervical flexion orientation in, in many cases. And again, part of this is this anterior compressive strategy in the neck to help reduce the, the airway size to create compression, force production, enhance the valve and the exhalation bias. But we have situations now where we have people that are getting very, very strong and so they are, they are really maxing out their ability to, to concentrically orient, to IR and exhale. 
Well, these are forced production positions and they also stop ranges of motion from occurring. And so what we need now is the minimal amount of external rotation, eccentric orientation to acquire position. So in many cases, so these are, these are gonna be your stronger individuals. They're gonna be more hypertrophied. They might be using some assistive equipment like a bench press shirt to even maximize um, the, the compressor strategy even farther, so, but they still have to touch the bar to their chest. And so what you're gonna see is actually a cervical flexion substitution that's going to allow enough movement for that bar to get to their chest. So if we look at a cervical flexion range of motion substitution, so what I have here is an individual um, who is who is compressed the anterior posterior in the upper thorax, and so you can see as he bends his head forward, you can see the prominence of the lower cervical spine moving towards flexion. And so what this is, is this is an external rotation substitution. So this allows just enough external rotation to occur through the shoulder girdle to allow them to, to make the, the, the contact with their chest with the bar so they can, they can truly complete uh, the bench press. You're also gonna see this, just a little FYI, you're also gonna see this occur most likely in the lumbar spine under the circumstances of somebody trying to gain depth in a squat. And so they go hand in hand. So whenever you see this, this uh, cervical substitution, you're probably gonna see the lumbar substitution as well. So guys, I appreciate your questions. I hope they, they lead you in a good direction. If you have other questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I'll see you guys tomorrow. Here's a solution for a right-handed pitcher with a hip external rotation deficit. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Well, so today's Wednesday and you know what that means. It means tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Coffee and coaches conference call as usual. Uh, the groups have been rather large. Um, getting bigger, having more fun, great questions. So please join us, 6 a.m. Thursday. No cost to you. Please post your coffee prep video on Instagram and tag me, and I will gladly share that. Okay, um, got to dig in. Today's Wednesday, always tight. Um, yesterday, we, we had one of our, our pro guys come in, um, baseball player, and he's getting ready uh, for camp. And so, um, we were doing some measurements and we were following his KPIs throughout his training. He's been doing exceptionally well, um, but we have this, this little bit of extra rotation deficit that is always a little bit of a concern, um, especially for a right-handed pitcher with a left-handed hip extra rotation deficit, because what we need here is a delay strategy on that left side to allow the right side to accelerate ahead of the left as he's throwing. So if you don't land with sufficient hip external rotation. We don't have a really good early propulsive strategy on that left side. And then what happens is, is we get a turn through the pelvis that looks more like an orientation. What we really want here is to be able to create a delay strategy. So what we want is, is that sacrum to move back on the ilium as they land on that left leg, which gives us that normal early propulsive strategy. And then we can superimpose the internal rotation on top of that as they hit max propulsion. Um, again, you don't land with enough ER, then it becomes an orientation where the entire pelvis turns as a unit. And what that does is it creates a, a longer path 
for the for the arm to follow and then that reduces uh, throwing velocity or if you maintain velocity we're going to get some load and stress somewhere where we don't want it and so um Eric's been training him and doing a doing a great job, great exercise selection, and, and we're able to capture this delay strategy at slower speed activity. So for instance, if we were doing a staggered stance uh, cable chop, that would be a very useful exercise to create this delay. And the thing that we want to recognize though is that this is not at speed. So we, what we want to do is we want to challenge him um, to actually maintain this hip external rotation at higher forces and higher velocities. And so what we're gonna do is we're, we're gonna modify a couple of his exercises. We're doing some chopping activities on a diagonal, but one of the key elements that you'll hear me say in, in the next part of the video is that we're gonna to try to maintain these activities um, on a diagonal that is, that is um, relative to his, his helical angle. So, so remember, your, your infrasternal angle is a representation of the helical angle of your, of your physical structure. And so what we wanna do is we wanna train on that angle to help us maintain a much more effective delay strategy. If, if the angle's too flat, for instance, relative to the, to the helical angle of the axial skeleton, you'll still get a turn, but it's gonna be a flatter turn, so we're more likely to create this, this pelvic orientation where the pelvis turns as a unit, rather than creating a delay strategy um, that allows the right side to accelerate in a much straighter line towards home plate and help us reduce the stress throughout the system. So we get a distributed stress instead of a focal stress. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna cut to the video that we shot yesterday. The sound quality is a little bit dif different because we're, we're actually over on the turf side um, at IFAST, so it's a little, it's a little loud. Um, but anyway, you'll, you'll get the gist of it. And uh, hopefully it stimulates some questions, so feel free to ask questions. Go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Coffee and Coaches Conference call tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. I will see you there. Um, and then here's the demonstration video. We're talking about, about trying to restore extra rotation at speed with one of our, our professional baseball players today. And you had selected two really good activities but we had to modify them just a little bit to recapture the extra rotation um, that, that, we, that we wanted. And so the, the only difference that we did is we changed the, the activities to capture what would be their, their axial scale or helical angle. So we want to turn them on their, their helical angle because if we turn it too flat, so, so take the bag and, and turn it flat for a second. So if we turn it flat, and go ahead and step back like we, like we have. So we're trying to recapture left hip external rotation in, in this. And so if you turn like we, like we did before, okay, so that's a flat turn on, on somebody that has a helical angle that's, that's on a diagonal, right? So as we do that, what we're gonna get is we're gonna get an orientation of the pelvis and the thorax towards me, which is a flat turn. So yes, you'll make a turn in this direction, but we've, we've created a very long, long loop, if you will, okay? So when we're talking about a baseball pitcher, we want to get as tight a turn as possible. So what we're going to do is we're going to modify the exercise a little bit. So we put it on the, the same diagonal as, as his axial skeletal helical angle. Now when he turns, there you go, and you can see this, this steeper diagonal. So what we've got here is we're actually creating the delay strategy on the back left side as, as you perform the, the, the chopping action. Okay? So again, we want to keep them on that helical angle. Okay? So that's step one. We use the water bag so we can modify this to, to meet the internal forces that he's producing. Now we want to talk about some, some velocity. So we're going to take the, the uh, medicine ball there. And this is a fairly light medicine ball. 
Okay? So what I'm going to do here, same kind of orientation, same angle. What I want you to do is I want you to hit that spot right in front of the left foot. So it's going to be pretty tight. So go ahead and reach up and then slam it down as close as you can. There you go. There you go. And then what I want you to do here is go ahead and turn around. Nikki, come on in a little bit. And where I want you to go is I want you to kind of zero in on, on the left hip and the, and the left low back a little bit. Step back and make sure that we can see this. So come on back, come on back, come on back, come on back. Okay, Eric, go ahead. And so as he slams, you can see that he's creating this delay strategy. Let me move you this way a little bit so we can get a, just a little bit of a highlight on this. There you go. So there you go. Now you can see the delay strategy. And come over this way too, Nikki. So you can see the hip. There you go. So there's the delay that we're trying to create. We have right hip going forward, we have left hip going back. And so this is a much tighter turn. And so now we're, we're talking about emphasizing this, this, this shortest distance between two points, kind of a thing where it's a much tighter turn versus something that would be out and loopy, right? Or would create an orientation, which is actually slow. All right. Happy Thursday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. So when thinking about mechanisms of change and restoring relative motion, there seems to be a point where you lose the improvement in relative motion and you begin to uh, drive like compensatory action to increase force production. Like when somebody starts wincing, holding their breath, and whatnot. Um, my question pertains more so to the mechanism of change and how do you know the stimulus you're providing is doing what it's supposed to be doing? Okay, so um, I would argue that we never really know what the mechanism of change is. Right. Okay, um, because we associate that with, with an intervention and the intention, and then what are the probabilities? So number one, to identify whether you're getting the change that you want, you got to know what change it is that you're shooting for, right? Okay, so you have to have an intention first and foremost. Then you have to intervene in some way, shape or form based on whatever it is that you've got in your head as a representation of, of what this person is capable of doing how the the system interacts right and that's that's whatever model that you use and then you apply the intervention and then you retest and you say okay that was good i'll do more of that or that was not good i need to not do more of that so there's there's a lot of all of these things that we do that are determined just just through the interaction because again, we're not we're not predictive, you know, outside of a, a small range of behaviors, we're not very, very predictive and, and people aren't very smart, right? We just don't know stuff. So the way that we figure stuff out is we do something and we then we see what happens. But and we can discuss mechanisms, right? There's a lot of influences. We can talk about the nervous system. We can talk about, about pressures. We can talk about volumes and fluid shifts and, and you know, sensory inputs and all of that, right? But when are they not active? <laughs> like every single one of them is active all the time. 
you just don't know which one you're you're influencing the most and 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 i know you know I, I always say this it's like i don't know why my my patients get better i just play probabilities and if you and if you can get comfortable thinking that way then you'll do a whole lot better but if you start thinking that you're you know changing changing tissues when you're not changing tissues and if that's your model then you fail a lot because the the chances of you changing that in in some acute way is slim to none right that's why that's why you you'll hear me use the word behaviors because behaviors change instantaneously based on context right you have you have you have constraints some of them are, are the physical structural constraints that do change, but they change over a long period of time. And then you have the stuff that is, that is, like I said, practically instantaneous. When you talk about neurotransmitter release and, and just again, emotion and behavior, that stuff changes instantly. And movement, movement has a very, you know, strong element of that type of behavior that's why we can change it quickly thankfully otherwise we'd be kind of screwed so what what position would you expect to see at the highest level of force production into the ground what would be your thought process on that a compressive strategy inside edge strategy. yeah well okay so so you have so so here's the rule i have to push into the ground really really hard which means that I have to I have to have some measure of internal rotation, which is which is my downward force into the ground. Can you do that in a supinated foot? Uh, you can. It's just not very effective, right? Your potential would be higher, right? Like in a supinated foot. To then compress, isn't ER IR happens in an ER space? So if you if you start supinating, you're actually rotated. You're moving away from the, you're moving away from the ground. So that means you're not putting you're not putting maximum force into the ground. Okay, so starting with more of a compressive strategy would from the get go, not so, so it it'll change by position as well, won't it? Like there's movement during the activity, right? depending on what I'm doing again, it's like, it's like, how stressful is this activity? How hard is it for you to, to break a deadlift off the ground? It's like, that's going to determine how much effort you put into. It's going to determine how much position you need to acquire to produce that force. But, but you're always going to apply force in the ground with, with a degree of internal rotation where it comes from varies how much varies. So there's not one. What we have to understand is, is how, how the, the segments are influenced through the motion based on load, based on technique, right? Everybody wants to chase like, uh, they want one. They want the answer. I don't, I don't think there is a uh, other than simple rules of you got to push into the ground. Okay. What if you had a supinated foot and you still need internal rotation? Do you think you can acquire it somewhere else? Mm -hmm. Of course you can. All I got to do is tip my pelvis farther forward. Now I've got more internal rotation because that's a downforce. 
right? Even though I've got a crappy supinated foot, but the supinated foot's gonna be a limiting factor because it's not going to allow me to maximize my pressure into the ground. Mm -hmm. So you, you see how the influences interact, mm -hmm. right? A, a, a high force foot, like, like if we're maximizing the force into the ground is gonna have a lower arch and you're going to be biased towards producing an internal rotation force, which is very, very difficult to do if I'm on the lateral aspect of the calcaneus because that would bias me towards ER. IR is my force producing position. So it would stand to reason that I would see more IR. How much? I don't know. Who are we talking about? How hard is it for them? Is it above their threshold where they, where they can't maintain a certain foot position, right? And, and so there's an advantage to understanding this because now you can just watch a client move and do something and you can identify like when are they really driving these internal rotation forces rather aggressively because now you can start to identify where their thresholds are. And you can say, that was a really good lift, but I don't think we want to go any farther today. So then it becomes very, very useful. But if you say it should be this, it should be that, I think, I think you identify what is, and then you, you uh, determine whether it is appropriate for the circumstance. It's not so much off topic, but real quick, I thought it- <laughs> This is a coffee call. There is no off topic. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say it was so cool about the configurations, especially with martial arts. And then Michael just mentioned Jordan Burroughs, like with wrestlers, why they're always short, wide, and stocky. It just makes so much sense versus like those long guys who are like, have a certain style. Yeah. It's just really cool. You apply it to any sport. Um, well, yeah, that's that. See, okay. Watch the Olympics. Okay. You're talking about the athletes at the highest level that are, that are highly specialized. And, and why are they like, like, why did the figure skaters pick figure skating? Well, there was thousands of little girls that picked figure skating, but only three of them had the right body type that could take them far enough. Right. If you look at the Olympic swimmers, they all look the same. Big giant hands, big giant feet, short legs, big long torsos with with scapulae that are oriented into ER. That's how you get the shoulder motion. Right. And so, again, you, the configuration determines what you're going to be good at. That was my light bulb moment of the call. So let's break down the supine cross connect. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. We are wrapping up a very solid week this week. Great call yesterday morning on the coffee and coaches call. My my oldest friend showed up on the call. He's a baseball coach. We talked a little bit about baseball and some other things. If you saw the highlights from yesterday, that was just a small clip of two hours. So hopefully you can join us next Thursday for that. Um, we're going to wrap up the week with a with a little bit of a breakdown of the supine cross connect. It's an exercise that I use quite a bit um, in in the purple room, and then we translate that into a lot of activities out in in, in the the training hall, and then as we're uh, evolving people or progressing them into um, the high speed dynamic activities. So it's 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 a very useful foundational activity. Um, I had a bunch of requests to, to actually break this down. So, so this is how we're going to wrap up Friday. Um, as far as who we're going to apply this to and when we're going to use this 
under, under specific circumstances. In, in many cases, we're looking at somebody that is biased towards a later propulsive strategy. So, so we're gonna get somebody with an anterior orientation. We're gonna see loss of early hip flexion. You're probably gonna see loss of both internal and external rotation. <clears throat> the anterior orientation is gonna take away the external rotation. You're typically gonna have an anterior compression that goes along with that. So we're gonna see the loss of both ERs and IRs. Um, and then you're definitely gonna see a limited straight leg raise in, in most of these situations. So what we're gonna try to do is we're gonna try to recapture this early propulsive strategy, which is, a, which is an ER bias, but we wanna make sure that we're controlling the, the orientation of the pelvis. So we have to, to control the position of, of the ischiotuberosity to get that, that posterior orientation relative to the, to the anterior. Um, so um, it, it's an ER bias, but it's also where we're gonna actually start to superimpose this internal rotation on top of it. So we need a yielding action in the, the posterior aspect of the pelvis and the posterior aspect of the thorax. Now, as you construct this exercise, you wanna start from the foot upwards. So, so the wall becomes the ground under these circumstances. And so we, we have to get the foot contacts correct. Otherwise, we're not gonna get the, the upstream activity uh, that we want. So we wanna make sure that we're capturing the first metatarsal head and the medial calcaneus on the wall. And so we've got the foot elevated off the surface. And what that does is it keeps the foot slightly in front of the pelvis, which would be our early propulsive uh, positioning. But capturing the first metatarsal head and the medial calcaneus is important because that's, that's that initial superimposition of internal rotation on top of the external rotation bias. Now, to hang on to those cues, we need that, that medial pressure on the foot. What people are gonna try to do is they're gonna try to internally rotate from, from the top down to try to capture this, this pressure on the wall. What I would encourage you to do is cue it through the ankle because what's gonna happen if they try to drive it through internal rotation, you're gonna get a little bit more knee flexion than you want and then you're also gonna get an anterior orientation of the pelvis. And so now we've just defeated the purpose of the exercise by letting them, them follow their compensatory strategy. Um, the knee is gonna be slightly bent under these circumstances because what I don't wanna do is turn this into a knee extension activity per se, because then it becomes all quad um, activity when I really want hip activity. So I'm gonna try to drive this through the hip from the top down and then maintain that ankle position so I can maintain my, my foot cues. Now, on the opposing side, we're gonna, we're gonna bend the hip and the knee, but where I want you to target the direction of the knee is towards the nose. So we need to bring this knee towards midline because what you're gonna see typically are two compensatory strategies at the hip. So number one, they're gonna try to, to ER the hip or they're gonna, they're gonna move the hip into an ER orientation and then try to uh, drive hip flexion, traditional hip flexion, which is actually gonna be IR in this position. And so we wanna avoid those two compensatory strategies because we're gonna take advantage of this compensation by making a turn into the support leg. So if I drive the knee towards midline, what's gonna happen is if I can hold that position, instead of the, the uh, lower extremity moving away from midline, I'm actually gonna turn the axial skeleton away from uh, away from the flexed hip and knee, that's internal rotation on the other side. Because remember, I'm starting to superimpose internal rotation on this ER biased position on the, on the support side. So again, we're taking advantage of the compensation.
Now, I'm gonna push into the wall. Again, I wanna control the ischial tuberosity, so I'm gonna push into the wall, so you're gonna feel a lot of activity in, in that uh, support side hip. So if we wanted to pick on a muscle, we could say, well, you're gonna feel a lot of glute max activity under those circumstances. Now, I'm gonna drive the opposite elbow towards the flexed hip and, and knee and what this is gonna do, it's gonna create a space between the spine and the scapula. And so this is gonna give us our yielding action in the, in the uh, uh, upper thorax. From a breathing standpoint, we wanna be able to breathe through this. So we're gonna inhale, but we're gonna think about bringing the knee and the elbow closer together on the inhale. And then my exhale strategy is going to be to push the wall away. So this constructs the entire exercise. Now, for some of the people, it's gonna be very, very difficult to, to breathe. And so I would encourage you, encourage you to capture the cues but don't force the activity between the, the elbow and the knee because we do want to be able to move air. And so I want people to expand under these circumstances because most of the people that we're gonna use this with are very, very compressed. And what we're gonna find over time is as they gain this capacity to expand and compress, we're gonna, gonna approximate that, that elbow and the knee much more effectively. You're gonna get a stronger push in the wall. So let them evolve this exercise. Don't try to be perfect on the first try because you're gonna capture a lot of good things if, as long as you maintain your, your contacts with the wall. So hopefully that gives you some ideas on how you're gonna utilize this activity, how to break it down, how to teach it. If you have any questions, go to askbillharmon at gmail.com, askbillharmon at gmail.com, and I will see you guys next week.